We've been in a series on Sunday evenings, and because Mike is preaching tonight, I'm finishing that up this morning. But on Sunday evenings, we've been talking about the child of God. And we've talked about the happy child of God, the mature child of God, and the spiritual child of God. And we finished that series up this morning by talking about the assured child of God. And so the child of God should be one, and if you are a child of God, you should have assurance. What does that mean? How do I have assurance and what do I know? Well, let's talk about balancing some concepts. How do I determine that I have assurance when at the same time there is the danger of falling? How do I balance assurance with the danger of falling? See, on the one hand, the Bible teaches we have hope and we have assurance. And we're going to look at those passages in a moment. But on the other hand, the Bible tells us that every child of God will commit sin. The Bible clearly tells us we need to be careful in living the Christian life and tells us that we could fall from grace. And so how do we balance those things? Could it be that when I begin to focus on hope that I forget about the danger of falling or I focus on the danger of falling, I forget the fact that I have hope. And they are balance principles because the Bible teaches both sides of that. So how can I know that I'm right with God? How can I know that? And we all sin, the Bible teaches that, and we'll look clearly at that passage in a few moments. And I know I'm not perfect. Every one of us will look at our lives and say, you know what, I know I'm not perfect. I know I, 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 I lack perfection. So how can I say I have hope when I know I commit sin from time to time and I'm not perfect? How, how can I have hope? Is it possible that I could be failing and not even know that I'm failing? Or will I know that I'm failing? So let's talk about the assured child of God. Three things we're going to notice this morning. Let's start with this. Let's talk about the child of God can have hope and assurance. We'll, we'll add some other principles to that a little bit later. But let's just establish the fact that the child of God can have hope and the child of God can be assured. So let's get our Bibles out and let's trace some passages that we know and be assured and be comforted by those passages. First of all, let's establish the fact that we can know that we are faithful Christians. You can know whether or not you are a faithful Christian or not. Let's turn around our Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, Jesus talks about rejoicing and why you rejoice. He said, nevertheless, do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now let me footnote here to say, notice the, the order of that. You rejoice because you know your name is written in heaven. It's not that you know your name is written in heaven because you have this great feeling of rejoicing. I feel good about myself. I'm rejoicing. I'm happy. I feel like I'm right with God. Therefore, I know I'm right with God. I know my name is written in heaven. That's not how it works. I know my name is written in heaven. I can know my name is written in heaven. And that leads me to rejoicing. So I'm establishing the fact I can know my name is written in heaven. That's possible to know. How we know, we'll look at a little bit later. Let's go to another passage about something I can know. I can know whether or not I'm a child of God. No child of God, no Christian should ever say, I, I hope I'm a child of God. I hope I'm a Christian. I'd like to think I'm a Christian, but, but I'm not so sure. I hope God considers me a Christian. I can know whether or not I am a child of God. Romans 8 and verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. When two things agree, then you know you are a child of God. More about those things that agree in a moment. 
I'm just trying to establish. I can know my name is written. I can know that I am a child of God. Now, I can have hope and I can be assured. I can know I'm a child of God, but I can know that I have some assurance. Now, let's go to Romans chapter 5. This assurance comes as a result of being justified by faith. We'll get to this in our studies in Romans a little bit later as we work through Romans beginning next Lord's Day. But Romans 5, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith. Now that I have just, I'm being justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So if I'm justified by faith, I have peace with God. What else do you have, Paul? Well, he goes on to say, verse 2, through whom we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. See, I can rejoice that I have hope in the glory of God. I can have hope and I'm rejoicing in that. That comes as a result of being justified by faith. Let's go back to Romans chapter 8. Go to Romans chapter 8. Three chapters over now in chapter 8. We just looked at verse 16. That I can know I'm a child of God. Now look at verse 17. If I'm a child, then that makes me an heir. Look at verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified together. So just like if you know for sure you're an heir of your parents, of their fortunes, whatever that may be, you can know that I am a child of God and I stand to inherit the fortunes that God has for his children. So I can know that I'm an heir. Let's go further. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 says there is a rest that remains and we can know that we're going to have a rest from our labors. Hebrews chapter 3 and chapter 4, those two chapters, draw a parallel between the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, wandering through the wilderness, and not making it to their promised land, dying in the wilderness before they made it to the promised land. So likewise, we could come from our uh, uh, Egypt of sin, making our way to our promised land, and could fall before we get there. But in spite of that danger, I want you to notice it in verse 1. Therefore, since the promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest some of you seem to come short of it. It's possible you miss it, but you can have the hope of eternal life. Look at verse 9. Therefore, there remains a rest for the people of God. If you're a person of God, a child of God, there is rest that remains, an inheritance that remains for the people of God. Let's go over to chapter 10 now. Not only can I have assurance, but the wording of Hebrews 10 and in verse 22 is, I can have full assurance. Let us draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance. It's not that I, I, I'm kind of assured. I kind of feel like I, I have hope. But I wouldn't say it's full. I, it, it, on a meter, if I empty to full, I wouldn't say it's over here at full. It may be about halfway. I, I kind of think I'm going to go to heaven. That's not how he words it. You have a heart of full assurance. Faith and full assurance. Let's go another time to First John chapter 2. I can know that I have eternal life. Not only can I know that I am a child of God, I can know I have eternal life. Turn to 1 John chapter 2 and in verse 25. 1 John 2, 25, then we'll go to chapter 5 and 13. Look at verse 25, and this is the promise that he promised us, eternal life. If I can't have the hope of eternal life, then God's made a promise that he will not fulfill. So here is a promise of eternal life. Chapter 5, 13, same book. Chapter 5, 13. You might underline a phrase here that gives us great assurance. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. What do you know? That you have eternal life. You can know you have eternal life. 
So here's what we're establishing. I can know I'm a faithful Christian, and I can know that I have hope and I have assurance. Now, when we talk about hope, hope is defined as being desire plus expectation. One of those elements without the other element is not hope. You may desire something that you do not expect, and you would never say, I hope for that. You may desire that someone give you a million dollars, but you wouldn't say, I'm hoping, I'm really hopeful that I'm going to get a million dollars from someone. You're not expecting that at all. But on the other hand, you may expect to pay higher taxes. I think they're going to hit me hard this coming year on, on taxes, you may say. And you're expecting that, but you're certainly not desiring that. So you don't go around saying, you know what, I'm hoping to pay more taxes next year. Because you don't have any desire for that. When there is desire coupled with expectation, then that is hope. So any passage that tells me I have the hope of eternal life is telling me that not only do I desire that, but I have expectation. Now watch this carefully. That has to be balanced with any danger or warning. Or looking from the other end, any passage that warns of danger and warns of falling has to be balanced with the principle that I can have the hope of eternal life. The warnings that say you could fall from grace never is designed to tell me you don't have any, any hope at all. So I'm trying to establish that we have hope and we have assurance. Here's the second thing. Now that I know I can know I'm a child of God and I can know that I have hope and assurance, let's establish the fact that the Christian living isn't hard to understand, nor is it hard to do. I'm convinced that there are some who have a concept that Christian living is complicated. You've you, you got this Bible and you read it, and who can figure out what we're supposed to be doing? It's so hard, it's so complicated to even understand what God wants, and much less it's even harder to do. It's, it's, it, we can't do that. So it's so hard and complicated, no way that I can know I'm doing what's right. So let's try to establish the fact Christian living isn't all that hard to understand, nor is it really hard for us to do. Let's start with this. I can know that I'm abiding by the Word. Not only can I know what the Word says, we'll come back to that in a moment, but I can know that I'm abiding by the Word. I said we'd come back to this passage, so let's go to Romans 8 and in verse 16. The Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God, or the children of God. Now, how does that work? The Spirit of God, the Spirit operates through the Word. Ephesians chapter 6 and in verse 17, the Spirit revealed the Word. Ephesians 3. So the revelation of God is the Spirit's Word. The Spirit bears witness through the Word. Now let's read again verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. What is your spirit? Your knowledge of yourself. What you've done. So can, let's just, just forget about spiritual things for a moment. Can you know whether or not you have met the demands of civil law, for example? Suppose civil law says that you have to, uh, for example, with reference to uh, paying taxes, you've got to pay a certain amount of taxes. And so you get the law out and you read it and it says, okay, you've got to pay a certain amount of taxes of your gross income. And now I know how much my gross income and I can take a calculator and figure a certain percent. Now I can know whether or not I've met law. Because I know what the law says, and I know whether I've done that, and I know whether they agree or not. All right, let's go back to Romans 8, 16 now, and make application to spiritual thing. The Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. How can I know I'm a child of God? Because I can read and understand what the revelation of God says, the Spirit has revealed to be a child of God, and I can know I've done that. 
It says I have to believe in Christ. I believe in Christ. It says I have to repent of my sins. I've done that. It says I have to be baptized for the remission of sins. I did that. So since I can read and understand, and that agrees with what I know I've done, I can know I'm a child of God. So I can know whether or not I'm doing what the Spirit has revealed. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. You know the passage, at least a portion of it from memory. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Now what that passage is telling me is, is that I can know whether or not I'm in the faith. In other words, I can take a self-examination and look, and I can know, I know whether or not I'm doing what this book says, or I know I'm not doing what that book says. It's possible to know. So I can know whether or not I'm abiding by the word. Now let's go a step further. I can know what the will of God is. Not, not only can I know whether I'm fitting that, but I can understand what it's saying. And let's establish that because part of the misconception is based on the Bible is hard to understand. And since it's hard to understand, I can't know if I'm doing it. So can I understand the Bible? Jesus said in John 8 verse 32, you shall know the truth. Now, can I know the truth? You say, I don't think we can. I don't think I can discern what truth is. Well, then Jesus was wrong about that. That makes Jesus a liar. And if Jesus is a liar, then he's not the son of God. And so that destroys the whole system of Christianity, doesn't it? We say, no, no, Jesus is not a liar. He told the truth. Okay, he said you can know the truth. Let's go to another passage. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning at verse 3. Paul said, I wrote a four and few words. That is, he took the things revealed by the Spirit and he wrote it down. Whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ. You can read it and you can understand it. It's not that hard. You can figure it out. In fact, while you're in that book, let's go over to the fifth chapter in verse 17. Not only can I understand, we are commanded to understand. This is a command of God. Be not unwise. Don't be ignorant, in other words. But understanding what the will of the Lord is. God not only says, you can understand my revelation, I expect you to understand my revelation. Let's go to another passage. Philippians 4.13. You know this one by heart. At least a portion thereof. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What is it telling me? I can do anything that God expects of me. Now someone who comes along and says, the Bible is so hard to understand. I can't, I can't grasp it all. I can't understand it. And I certainly can't know if I'm doing it or not. Then I cannot do all things through Christ. There's things he's asked me to do and he's told me to do. I can't even understand what he wants me to do. That's not the case at all. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I can know I'm abiding by the word. And furthermore, I can know what the will of God is. Now let's go further. Let's establish the fact that how to live the Christian life is not hard to know, nor is it hard to do. If I can know what the will of God is and I can know if I'm doing it, let's just list some things involved in living the Christian life and just demonstrate that there may be some hard aspects of it, but it's not hard to understand, nor is it hard to do. Let's take, for example, Romans 6. The whole chapter is devoted to this principle. Do not continue in sin. Shall we continue in sin? He said, God forbid, verse 1. Don't do it. Now, how hard is that? It's not hard to understand. What he's saying is, what sin was being committed before you become a children of God, a child of God, now that you are a Christian, you're not continuing to do the same thing. How hard is that to understand? If you were lying before you became a Christian, when you become a Christian, the lying's got to stop. It's not hard to understand it. The drinking's got to stop. 
The cursing's got to stop. The adultery's got to stop. You don't do that anymore. Now, the only hard part about doing that is I may like the lying, I may like the cursing, I may like that, but it's not hard to do. So living the Christian life isn't all that hard. Let's take another uh, matter. Relationships of Romans 12 and 13. That's not chapter 12, verse 13, but chapters 12 and 13. There's our relationship to God, verses 1 and 2. There's our relationship to fellow man. There's the relationship to fellow Christians. Relationship even to our enemies. Chapter 13, the relationship to our civil government. Now let's just take a sampling of that. So you might turn over to Romans 12. And let's see how hard this might be. For example, let love, verse 9, be without hypocrisy. In other words, be sincere in your love. Don't kiss someone to the face and then stab them in the back. That's not hard to understand, nor is it hard to do. Let's take another one of these. For example, um, look at verse 12. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfast in prayer. It's not hard to understand, nor is it hard to do. What about verse uh, verse 17? If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That's not hard to understand, nor is it hard to do. Let's jump over to chapter 13. What about a relationship to civil government? You obey the laws of the land. Paraphrasing verses 1 to tw- uh, 7. That's not hard to understand, nor is it hard to do. We may not like it, but it's not hard to do. Let's take another matter. Taking the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. The context argues for the fact that that means that I'm focused on the meaning of the elements. That's not hard to understand, nor is it hard to do. Let's take another principle. Giving of our means, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. Giving as we have been prospered. Not hard to understand, not hard to do. What about putting on the new man and a number of qualities like kindness and love and mercy? That is, you you change the way you live and you put on a new characteristic, a new attitude, new actions. Putting off the old man, putting away that sin, and a catalog of sins that are listed like envy. You put that away in adultery and uh, fornication and drunkenness, etc. You put all that away. Not hard to understand. Watching your language. Watch how you talk. No filthy communication coming out of your mouth. Or emphasis on the home and the family. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, reverence their husbands. Train your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Those are not hard to understand. They're not hard to do. In fact, we put, put a number of principles of living the Christian life in different categories. Whether it's obeying civil law, conducting yourself right on the job, personal godliness, how you treat others, worship home and family. None of those are hard to understand. None of those are hard to do. Let's go a step further now. I want you to consider with me that hard and difficult passages really don't affect my living right. Now it's true there's some difficult passages. That if this were a Bible class and I were to open up, what does this passage mean? There would be somebody that would say, I think I can explain it. But I'd say most of us would be a little intimidated saying, I've got my own conviction, but I'm not ready to explain that in front of the whole crowd. Like what? What is baptism for the dead? 1 Corinthians 15, 29. What does that mean? What's that about? Is it talking about being baptized in view of death? Or is it some kind of baptism that's related to someone that's already dead? Commentators have a problem with that passage. I think I know what it means. It's a difficult passage. That doesn't affect you living the Christian life. Let me give you another difficult passage. What does unequally yoked together refer to? Something that refers to marriage. I don't think so. But you may think it does. 
You say, I struggle with that. I don't know what he's talking about. That, that's difficult for some. That didn't affect your living the Christian life. Let me give you another example. What is Mary only in the Lord? Was it talking about marrying Christians or marrying only in harmony with the Lord's principles, but he wasn't talking about being marrying a Christian? Or is he talking about marrying a Christian, but only under the circumstance of the present distress? It is given three different interpretations. Which is it? You say, I'm not sure. That's kind of hard. Tell you what, that doesn't affect you living the Christian life. Living God. What about, what does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? What does that mean? I think I know. Because I've taught that passage. Perhaps you know. But in what sense did he empty himself? Or is that a good translation that he emptied himself? What's it talking about? There's some difficult passages. What's the day approaching? But so much more as you see the day. Is that the second coming? And if so, how can you see the day approaching? Or is it talking about the destruction of Jerusalem? And did David do wrong in eating the showbread? Some think he did. Some think he didn't. Did he do wrong? You see, those are difficult passages. I want to suggest to you, even those are not impossible. With study, we can't. Paul, or Peter said Paul wrote some things hard to be understood. Not impossible, but hard. So there are some passages. We're about to get into Romans. There's some difficult things in Romans, I want to tell you. Some very difficult things. It's not impossible. What I'm trying to demonstrate to you is difficult and hard passages don't affect my living right. I still know how to live the Christian life because I can know whether or not I'm abiding by the word. Now, here's the third and final section. The child of God can have hope and assurance. The child of God can live the Christian life. It's not hard to understand or to do. But the child of God will not be, nor will he ever be, perfect. And how do I harmonize that? Let's see if we can do that as we go along. Let's establish the fact the Christian will sin. If you're a Christian, you've been baptized into Christ, there are going to be times you will sin. Look at 1 John 1 and verse 8. This is a passage you know well, but we need to establish this principle. Because we've got to harmonize this with other principles. 1 John chapter 1 and in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. What did John just say? John said, you're a Christian, there will be times you will commit sin. And if you say, I'm a Christian, but I don't ever sin, you're a liar, he said. You're lying. And so, don't say that, because you'd be lying. Christians will sin. Let me give you some examples of that. For example, Simon did. Simon obeyed the gospel. He was a Christian. And then he offered to buy the Holy Spirit with money. He tried to buy the power of the Spirit with taking money out of his pocket and buying that. And Peter told him, your money perished with you. You're in danger of perishing. You sinned. He asked Peter to pray for his forgiveness. He sinned. But he was already a child of God. Let me give you another example. Peter himself did that. Remember when he acted as a hypocrite and wouldn't associate with the Gentiles? And withdrew himself from them and even Barnabas was carried away with that hypocrisy. So there's some examples of Christians who committed sin. Listen to this very carefully. That doesn't mean this. That because you will sin that it's justified... Or that it's excused. It's just stating a fact. That's all that passage is doing in 1 John 1 and verse 8. It's just saying the Christian will sin. You say, well, therefore it's okay because the Bible says you'll do it. No, no, no. It doesn't excuse it. It doesn't say it's justified. It just says you're a Christian. There will be times you commit sin. But let's go further. That sin must be corrected. You say, how do you know that? Well, Simon corrected his sin, didn't he? 
Simon corrected that sin. He was told to pray God if perhaps the thought of his heart be forgiven him. Repent and pray that perhaps the heart, thought of your heart be forgiven you. So you need to repent. You need to pray. He asked Peter to pray that none of these things happen unto him. He wanted forgiveness. Let's turn to 1 John 1 and verse 9. Verse 8 is the passage. It said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. Very next verse. Very next verse. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What I'm trying to establish is you will commit sin. Sin needs to be corrected. 1 John 1 and in verse 9. But now, let's establish this principle. Listen to this very carefully because this gets to the rub. The Christian does not live in a constant state of sin. The child of God, the assured child of God is not living in a constant state of sin. Evidence? Romans 6. Shall we continue in sin? And his answer was, God forbid. We don't continue in sin. So if you're living in a constant state of sin, as some say we are, what that means is you're continuing in sin. And Romans 6 and verse 1 said, don't do that. You don't do that. 1 John 2 and verse 1, John said, I write unto you that you might not sin. Same book that had said, you will commit sin, verse 8. He said, I'm writing unto you that you might not sin. So sin can be stopped. Look at 1 John 3. Now this is important because we're going to harmonize this with other passages in a moment. Look at 1 John chapter 3. We're getting to the, to the, to the concepts now that's going to help us harmonize what may seem like contradictory concepts. Look at 1 John 3 beginning at verse, verse, uh, verse 3. And whosoever has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. He's talking about the child of God that has hope. Now verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness for sin is lawlessness. Now you have hope, but here's what happens if you commit sin. Now verse 6, whoever abides in him does not sin. What do you mean he doesn't sin? Chapter 1 verse 8 said he does sin. It means he doesn't continue to practice sin. Look at verse 9, whosoever is born of God does not sin. What does it mean he doesn't sin? He doesn't make a practice of sin. Same book. Let's go to chapter 5 now, beginning at verse 16. Chapter 5, beginning at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother's sin, sinning a sin that does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give life for those committing a sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death, and I say to you that you should pray. You, that not, I do not say to you that you should pray about that. Now let's see if we can harmonize a couple of things. There is a principle of sinning. And then there is the principle we've already noted of not continuing in sin. And what I'm trying to establish is there is a difference. There's a difference in occasionally committing a sin that you correct and continuing in a state of sin. The same book that says we commit sin, we do sin, also says we're not to continue in sin. Now chapter 5 may give us some insight to that. How so? That this is sin that I'll correct... But here is sin that I continue in that I don't correct. Now let's go back to chapter 5. Read with me now at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death. How does sin not lead to death? Because he corrects that sin. In other words, I may, in a moment of weakness, say something I shouldn't say. I may say a curse word I shouldn't have said. And I tell you I'm sorry and I repent and I pray God for that. And I don't do that again for a long time. 
I've committed sin, yes. I will do something like that, but I correct that. But here's a difference in that and continuing in sin. That's a sin that is unto death. And he says, notice now verse 16 again. He said, there is a sin leading to death. Why does it lead to death? Because he didn't correct it. He didn't repent of it. There is a sin leading to death. He said, and I do not say that you should pray about that. He's not saying don't pray that he would come to repentance. What he's saying is don't pray for his forgiveness because there is no correction for that. What I'm trying to establish is there's a difference in committing sin and in continuing in that. And continuing in a life and in a state of sin. Now, I want to establish this principle. A lack of perfection is not sin. Let that sink in for a moment. A lack of perfection is not sin. Here's a false concept. Some Christians have the concept, I am in a constant state of sin. We're living in sin all the time. I mean, living in sin right now. And you ask, well, what makes you think you're living in sin right now? Because I'm not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. Huh. Oh, only one perfect was Jesus, and, and I'm far from that. I'm not perfect. So that tells me since I'm not perfect, I must be in a state of sin right now. What I want to establish for you is... That a lack of perfection is not sin. Now that's an important point in understanding these passages as we try to harmonize them. Let's talk about the difference in things that are absolute and things that are relative. This is important in talking about assurance. There are certain things in the Bible that are absolute. What do you mean they're absolute? There's no varying degrees. I can be perfect in it and there's no room for growth. Like what? Well, let's take this for example. Baptism being immersion. Now, when you were baptized, you were either immersed or you weren't. Immersion means to go under the water. You either went under the water or you didn't go under the water. And if you were baptized by immersion, your baptism is perfect. There's no room for growth. Do you ever hear anybody talk about, I'm, I'm growing in my baptism. My baptism is better this year than it was last year. Really? <laughs> How'd that happen? Can you explain that growth to me? <laughs> I don't understand how you're growing. You don't grow in your baptism. There is no room for improvement. Here's another thing. Baptism for the remission of sins. It was either for the remission of sins or it wasn't. It's not like, well, it, it's more like it's that, uh, to, uh, for the remission of sins this year than it was last year. You don't grow in that. The Lord's Supper on the first day of the week. I'm not talking about whether you're growing in how you focus. I'm talking about whether it's on the first day or not. We're about to partake of the Lord's Supper. It's on the first day of the week. It's absolutely perfect in that. It's not like, well, it's, it's more like the first day this week than it was last week. I mean, we're getting better. It's, it's perfect. There is no room for growth. On the other hand, there are a number of things in the Bible that are relative. What do I mean relative? There are varying degrees. We never reach perfection and there's still room for growth. Faith, for example. If this were a Bible class, I would ask, is anybody perfect in faith? Your faith couldn't grow if you could try it. Your faith couldn't be any stronger if you tried. There are varying degrees of faith. There's little faith, there's great faith, the Bible talks about. Weak in faith, strong in faith. Knowledge. There are varying degrees of knowledge. There's room for growth. And the same thing with self-control and the same thing with godliness and the same thing with kindness. Those are things where there are varying degrees. There is room for growth. No one is ever perfect in that. More about that in just a moment. The lack of perfection in those areas is not sin. 
You say, well, why, why, why would you say it's not sin? Because no one, not a single person, would ever claim they're perfect in knowledge. I've maxed out in knowledge, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't gain any knowledge. Uh, if, if I tried, you couldn't teach me anything because I've maxed out in knowledge. There's no more knowledge that I could gain. Anybody arrogant enough to say that? And if that lack of perfection is sin, that means we're living in a constant state of sin. And then the Bible tells us not to do that. How do you, how do you harmonize that? You harmonize that by showing that simply that's not a state of sin. Here's the key. Here's the key. Let's go to 2 Peter 1.5. We're going to come back to this because I want to drive this point home. 2 Peter 1.5. Giving all diligence. Are you doing the best you can? Are you doing the best you can do in knowledge and in faith and love, etc.? Now, we're coming back to that passage in a moment, so keep your Bible open there. There has to be room for growth. We're trying to establish the lack of perfection does not necessarily constitute sin. There has to be room for growth. Every one of us should be continually growing as a Christian. In fact, as newborn babes, the text doesn't say newborn babes need to grow, but we need to be, this is an important word, as newborn babes. So you're not a newborn babe, you say, okay, that's right. But you are to be as a newborn babe and grow. Craving the milk of the word, craving the word of God like the babe craves the milk. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge. That's the command. You need to be growing. All right, since we're commanded to grow, Colossians 1 talks about increasing in knowledge. Same word for grow. Same word. We're to continually be growing. Now, if we don't account for room for growth, in other words, if we don't, in our analysis of the Christian life, account for room for growth, listen to this carefully. If we do not account for room for growth, then we're expecting the same thing of the newborn babe as we do the mature. If we're not accounting for room for growth, that means this person who's just been baptized today is just as spiritually strong as this person who's been a Christian for 60 years. How does that work? And, and you say to this babe, you need to grow. No, I can't grow because I'm just as strong as that person over there. There's no room for growth, you see. There's no improving and there's no maturing. So let's go back to 2 Peter 1. That's our last passage. Last point to be made and we're in the lesson of years. Let's go back to 2 Peter 1. Trying to establish this principle, a lack of perfection does not constitute sin within itself. Could. It could. And let's talk about that, how that happens here in just a second. 2 Peter 1. This is what we call the Christian graces. 2 Peter 1, 5 to 10 talks about adding to faith, virtue, virtue, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brother, kindness, and love. Every single one of those eight characteristics are things relative in their nature. None of them are absolute. Absolute in the sense that you either do it or you don't. They're varying degrees. There's varying degrees of faith. There's varying degrees of knowledge. Varying degrees of self-control. Godliness, love, kindness. And let's analyze those things. None of us are perfect in any one of those. And we're excluding the Lord himself. I don't know of anyone who's ever been perfect in any of those. Do you? I don't know of an apostle. I don't know of any human being I've ever met, any Christian I've ever met. The strongest people I've ever met that I would say they were perfect in knowledge. They couldn't learn one more thing if they could. Their faith was absolutely perfect. They couldn't grow in their faith anymore. It was the strongest that anybody's faith ever was. I don't know of anybody. Nobody's perfect in any of those. 
There's room for growth. If there's room for growth, you're not perfect. So look at yourself and say, you know what? Do, do I have room for my faith to grow stronger? Do I have room for knowledge to be greater? Do I have room to be better at self-control? The same thing with love. You may be doing the best you can do. But with time, you can grow even more. You see, you never will master to perfection. So let's say you obey the gospel at age, just for illustration, say 20. And you live to be a long, live a long time. And now 80 years later, you're 100 years old and you still have your mind and your clarity. And you say, I've, I've grown and I've worked hard. Would you say now at 100 years old that you've maxed out? You couldn't, you can't learn anymore? Or your faith is as strong or your love is greater than, than uh, it could ever be. It couldn't grow anymore. If you live to be 85 or 105, rather. None of us will ever master perfection. Here's the key. I said this already, so let's go back. And I said I wanted to come back and emphasize again. Look at verse 5. Here's the key to this. You say, well, well can't can, can I have a lack of knowledge and be sinning? And can I not be showing love and, and sin? Oh, yeah, you sure can. Here's the key. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, giving all diligence. What does that mean? Doing the best you can. Working hard at it. Notice at the end of that, at verse 10, be even more diligent, doing the best you can. You see, here's the key. I, I might not have the knowledge that somebody else has, but if I'm doing the best I can, that lack of perfection doesn't mean I'm living in a state of sin. But it may mean my knowledge is down here because I'm not working at it. I'm not trying. And I could be in sin because I'm not working at it. I'm not trying to grow. I'm not studying. So my lack of knowledge may be sinful because I'm not trying. But if I'm doing the best I can, my abilities may not match yours. And so you've gone further than I have. But I'm doing the best I can. Same thing with love. Same thing with godliness. Same thing with self-control. Same thing with faith. The key is diligence. The assured child of God. A child of God can have hope and they can have assurance. Christian living isn't all that hard to understand. Nor is it hard to do. We can do it. And the child of God will not be perfect. Doesn't mean God approves of your sin. You will sin. But a lack of perfection doesn't necessarily constitute sin. We're not living in a constant state of sin, sinning every minute of every day. Because we can't harmonize that with passages that tell us continually, don't continue to practice sin in your life. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while we stand and sing?